So eventually I came back to the city. I was in Wyoming, maybe six months. Um, I came back to the city and decided that I was going to return to college. But before I did so, I was going to go to like 800,000 Allman Brothers concerts. I just (laughs) dedicated my time to going to see the Allman Brothers wherever and whenever I could. And I do not regret that. It was fucking amazing. Um, I also worked in a swanky restaurant on the upper, in Midtown East, rather, not Upper East Side, on West 52nd Street as a hostess and also as the lunchtime coat check girl. And the coat check had no heat and it was winter. And so I would save a few tickets in my pocket to give to the women who had fur coats so I could like hang them over my head and stay warm. But I actually, I made a shit ton of money as a coat check girl. Some people just like to give young girls $100 bills for taking their coats. So I I took that. Um, And what I learned from that whole experience was how well-suited I was to work in the restaurant business and how dangerous it is and to stay away from it and keep my kids away from it as much as possible. Um, it's just you wait, you're, you get off work late at night, you've got a ton of cash and you've got access to every bar in your neighborhood because that's where all your friends work. You have found the place to be. This is the Self-Love Peddler Show. I'm Sophie McCallum, your personal self-love peddler. Please leave the single narrative, airbrushed, beauty bot images you have been forced fed at the door. Here we examine our relationship with our bodies and the many shapes and nuances our bodies have. The only way to end women's cycle of body shaming, judgment, and self-loathing is through a common pact and plan to change the way we collectively think about our bodies and the bodies of those around us. Welcome to the journey. So in Wyoming... In order to avoid human beings, I got a lot of jobs. So I worked in the hotel, which involved this fucking Home Depot bucket size of muffin mix that I would squeeze, I was going to say squirt. No, I would scoop scoop into muffin trays and then make them for the the, uh, motel guests. It was like one main house that we lived in and where there was a kitchen with bre- with these muffiny breakfasts and then all of these little sort of cabins outside. And then after we did breakfast, we did the housekeeping. Me and this wonderful woman, um, we did all of the housekeeping. She was Mormon. I lived with a bunch of Mormons there and they were fucking great. And we cleaned the toilet. We, you know, we cleaned the rooms. I was a housekeeper. And I also worked as a model for an outdoor nude photography school. So after the housekeeping, I would a couple days a week go fucking crash in the woods all naked sitting on twigs in Wyoming while people took my picture. Um, I volunteered at a hospital gift shop because I had volunteered at the hospital that my grandmother worked in, I should say, that summer where I thought all I did was sit in a hammock. I did a couple days a week go volunteer at a hospital because I I knew I had to do something. So because I was at a place where I had no knowledge of myself and what made me tick other than alcohol, I just did what I had done before. So I got a job volunteering in the gift shop of the hospital across from the hotel. I got a job working the night shift in the outdoor mall for Payless. Thank you for calling Payless during our buy one, get one free sale. This is Sophie. How can I help you is how I would answer the phone. So I had a bunch of jobs. Now, 
I stole shoes from Payless. I stole trinkets from the hospital gift shop. I fucking, like, I had, I was just, I had no compass, you know? I, I mean, I wasn't, a, like, an asshole, but, like, I had no idea of what it means to be Sylvie McCallum. It was a wonderful place to be because when you grow up in New York City, it's really easy to think that you live in the center of the universe and everything else around you is sort of like kale on the side of a salad bar before kale was cool. You know, it's just like you live in the juicy wonderfulness of the earth and everything else is shit. And, you know, I now know that that could be farther from the truth. But going to boarding school where I met a lot of different kinds of people and loved them and you know, have such strong relationships even to this day with those people. And then living with a group of Mormons who could not have been more awesome in Wyoming was incredible. These two guys that also worked at the hotel, brothers, I don't remember their names, but they would take me four-wheeling on Sundays. And they would also drive me to the other side of the Teton Mountains, to the Idaho side, and I would have Sunday lunch with their grandmother, sometimes Sunday dinner. This is all before like cell phones and internet and maintaining communication with people. So I don't even remember these guys' names. I don't know where they are today, but they were great. And they were friends. There was no like sexual energy. They were just like good dudes. So eventually I came back to the city. I was in Wyoming maybe six months. I came back to the city and decided that I was going to return to college. But before I did so, I was going to go to like 800,000 Allman Brothers concerts. I just like <laughs> dedicated my time to going to see the Allman Brothers wherever and whenever I could. And I do not regret that. It was fucking amazing. Um, I also worked in a swanky restaurant on the upper, in Midtown East, rather, not Upper East Side, on West 52nd Street as a hostess and also as the lunchtime coat check girl. And the coat check had no heat and it was winter. And so I would save a few tickets in my pocket to give to the women who had fur coats so I could like hang them over my head and stay warm. But I actually, I made a shit ton of money as a coat check girl. Some people just like to give young girls $100 bills for taking their coats. So I, I took that. Um, and what I learned from that whole experience was how well-suited I was to work in the restaurant business and how dangerous it is and to stay away from it and keep my kids away from it as much as possible. Um, it's just you wait, you're, you get off work late at night, you've got a ton of cash, and you've got access to every bar in your neighborhood because that's where all your friends work. Hello, wonderful, worthy, self-loving women. I'm thrilled to introduce you to my newest course, Mastering Your Love Centers Through Conscious, Compassionate Self-Love. There's a gold medal in you waiting for you. Are you ready to accept it? This course is all about the ever-evolving process of self-love and self-discovery. If fully embraced, just like self-love, it is endless and can deliver boundless results. Through this course, you will find yourself living fully as your greatest you. In Flourish and Fly, my introductory course, we talk about learning to love ourselves. We learn to see that we are worth the gold. Here we take action. We grab the gold medal. Remember, you may achieve a silver trying to be someone else, but only you have the right to your gold, to your unique glory. Join me inside of Mastering Your Love Centers Through Conscious, Compassionate Self-Love and grab your gold. It's already yours for the taking. Are you ready to take it? Join me. 
Your time is now. So at some point, I, again, started to think about returning to college. And I ended up in Burlington, Vermont, because my man friend and I had taken a boat with one of his friends, a cabinless boat, mind you, like a very no-frills little boat from Lake Champlain in Burlington, Vermont, to New York Harbor through all of the locks. It took, I think, four days, and it was a lot of beer and a lot of fun. But the best part about that whole trip is I was brought to Burlington, Vermont, and I just I really loved that place. There was something about that town that did and still does resonate with me. It's the one place I've lived outside of New York City for an extended period of time. It's where I met my first husband. It's where I began to take my music seriously for the first time in my life. And so I decided to go to the University of Vermont um, about a week, actually exactly A week to the day before I moved to Vermont was the last time I did cocaine. And a couple months before that, unexpectedly, out of the blue, I I did not plan on doing this. I was having lunch with my mother at one of those, like, salad bars that were all the rage in the 90s, like, that had just sort of become a thing in New York City. Bodegas had salad bars. And um, they had, like, an upstairs eating area where you could plop with your salad bar. And we were sitting there, and I just burst into tears out of the blue nothing premeditated about this and said, mom, I'm doing cocaine all the time and I have to stop. And it was like, you know, Houston, we have a problem. Like something in my subconscious made me come clean. She said, how can we help? And I said, you don't need to do anything. I just need to tell you that this is what I'm doing. And other than that one time I tried it again, I have never touched the stuff because I was never really a drug addict. I was an alcoholic. I did drugs because, you know, they were part of my identity. But the second I recognized them as not good, I stopped. So I did them again. I did it one more time. And that last time was really I didn't like the way I acted. I didn't like um, the way it made me feel. And I certainly couldn't tolerate the hangover. So drugs were over by the age of 20 for me. I moved up to Vermont with this new, like, I don't do drugs attitude, which was very good, I guess. I remember the first time I went out in in college, they had like movie nights. So I brought my wallet because I had been working and like living in the world. And they were like, no, 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 the movie's free. The popcorn's on us. And I was like, I had never appreciated like the cocoon of academia more than at that moment. Because I was like, oh my God, for the next three years, this is all like, all I have to fucking do is show up and work a little bit. Um, which was like pretty basic after having jobs and trying to maneuver myself as a very like mentally stunted human in the world. But I was still drinking. And I also had told myself when I moved up to Vermont that I really like wanted to play more music. Like I, I wanted to join a band. I wanted to get that whole part of me that was supposedly my biggest hope and dream activated. And I recognized one night that like the booze was hurting me. So I kind of pulled the same trick I did with my mom. And I went into my friend Zach's room in a pile of tears. And I was like, all my friends have always been men, my close friends. And uh, I said to Zach, I'm like, I got to stop drinking. And he's like, you know what? I don't really see it because, you know, we were like all a bunch of kids who were drinking together. But I knew, I knew how long and deep and rooted my drinking history was. And I knew from my experience at no longer doing cocaine, how like coming to these realizations could be such a pivotal moment for change. So I told myself and I told Zach that I was going to stop. And I don't know how long I stopped for. I was 21 and I didn't get really sober till 40. 
And I think I quit drinking for good, let me tell you, like forever, about three times a year for those roughly 20 years. Um, so that's 60 relapses, give or take, you know, like I have no idea how many, but that shit was constant. And if I wasn't drinking, I was like running 10 miles and I was like eating fucking twigs all day. And if I was drinking, like I was in strip clubs all night and like fucking eating cheeseburgers for breakfast. Like it was Jekyll and Hyde shit. My friends would say to me, like, if we were going out to dinner, so are you drinking or are you not drinking? Because like the trajectory of our evening, and not only my, I mean, that was what my good friends asked me, but then like the people I ran with, like the Fairweather friends, either I had like the health nuts or the like, or it was like Keith Richards and Mick Jagger were waiting for me in the corner. Like it was very confusing. And again, no knowledge of the self. No knowledge of who I was, no love for myself, all goes back to how I became the self-love peddler. So during that first dry spell at 21, when I was like, never drinking again, I uh, pulled like a tag off a flyer, you know, like on the poster board that we used to have before cell phones and and uh, Craigslist or whatever people use today, uh, singer needed. So I got down to a 45 George Street, Burlington, Vermont, went down to the basement, auditioned for the band, and got the gig. They uh, turned all the other auditioneers away, is that a word? After they heard me sing, which was pretty great. It was in that band that I met my first husband, the father of my three boys. So that like that first dry spell like really set a foundation for change in my life that was like paramount. I know that for our first gig, which was like in the basement of the student center, I could not have been more inebriated, like off the charts. I remember hearing the guys talking like a couple of days later, like, how are we going to tell her that like she can't show up like that? And like, these are a bunch of like 20 year old, like, like everybody's first band. Like, you know, it's, it's not like I like really screwed up our debut at Carnegie Hall. Like, we were all partying, but my partying was different. But I needed it. I needed that like social lubricant. I needed those those like tits, if you will, like that like I refused to say balls, even though I just did. I needed I needed the tits to get on stage and do this, you know. That same first gig, um, a lot happened that night. We'll leave it there. I don't think I'm going to go any farther there. But you know, years later, when I was still drinking and I had been doing that song and dance with alcohol, I did find a happy medium as a singer and a performer. I would have one shot of gin before each set, and then after the set was over and I had loaded up my gear so that I didn't lose my gear, I could drink whatever I wanted. So I always had like controls and procedures for every part of my life, like things that allowed me to continue to drink and allowed me to never really hit a bottom. I had a severe allergy to alcohol. I do have that allergy. Like my hangovers were so bad that that's usually what caused me. It wasn't usually behavior things that made me want to stop. It was like feeling so sick that I wanted to die. So I stayed in Vermont for a few years after I graduated. I ended up with a degree in art history because I found it very easy to sit there and look at a piece of art and tell you what it made me think, feel, and believe. I don't know, it was just easy. So I got a degree in art history. Never really used that degree for anything I've done. But I decided after after a few years of staying in Vermont, I was living and I was engaged with the bass player of that first band. And um, we were playing music and 
had a ton of jobs. Like my, I, I could do a whole podcast on my, my uh, side hustles, but I'll spare you the details. Um, but at some point, my mother called and she was telling me how she'd had this conversation with my brother about how he wanted his professional financial future to be. You know, my brother and I are both in our 20s at this point. And I remember thinking, huh, I wonder how I want my professional financial future to be. Like, I don't know. That wasn't a question she was asking me. Maybe it was because I was a woman. Maybe it was because, like, I faked togetherness so well that, like, oh, Sophie's pursuing music in Vermont. She's totally pulled together. She's getting married. But um, so what did I want my professional financial future to be? And I realized like all of a sudden I, I would make these knee-jerk realizations and change my complete trajectory like, oh, shit, I want to make money. Oh, shit, money is choices. What the fuck am I doing in Vermont? And like, you know, very soon after that, I was smack back in New York City and I decided to go into sales. <laughs> and I dropped music like a bad habit. Didn't drop any of my bad habits, but I dropped music. And one thing that I have come to realize is that whatever sparks you, there's this quote I love. It says, seek out that particular mental attribute, which makes you feel most deeply and vitally alive, along with which comes an inner voice that says, this is the real me. And when you have found that attitude, follow it. And I love that quote by William James because I didn't know how to do that, but music was the closest thing to like that particular mental attribute, to like that state of being that made me feel whole. And in my most recent course that I've released called Mastering Your Love Centers Through Conscious, Compassionate Self-Love, which I would encourage all of you to check out. It's amazing and I'm insanely proud of it. I talk about our love centers, like the areas in life in which we put our energy. And Uniquely You is one of our love centers. And that is the place where you're doing that one thing that is just for you. And for me, that's music. And these th this love center is generally the first to go. Like when things get busy, it's like, oh, well, I'm not letting anyone down with but myself, so fuck it, I'll get to that later. And I did that with music. I was like, okay, I'm going to make money. Like I'm going to I'm going to make my identity like professional financial success. And I just dropped music. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was like just dropping such a big piece of what made me me. And it was like just adding to the emptiness. So I realized sales. Sales, if you, if you haven't like done like degree specific work and like you don't have a lot of experience, if you can sell something, like you can get a job. So I was looking into medical sales, and then one of my parents' friends said, you know, it's just as easy to sell an $11 bottle of pills as it is to sell an $11 million townhouse. And I was like, oh, yes, it is. So I got my real estate license. I was 150% only chasing money. Like there was no other consideration about what I was going to do with my time and energy. It was like I wasn't making money. I mean, I was making some money playing music, but like not much. And so I'm now going to be someone who makes money. I like, you know, went from like ripped jeans to suits and like started selling real estate. One of the things that I am incredibly, incredibly thankful for is during COVID, I put a band together again, not me, a group of us did. It wasn't just me. And um, I now have a band family again. I'm so thankful for them. Um, it's a huge piece of my life and my heart. 
And as things get busier and the world has opened up again, it's become even harder for us to like carve out this time together. But I am not going to let it go. And, and these guys aren't either. And to have that like band family again is, it's really ever since I've had that, ever since that Uniquely You love center has been filled again, my professional life has blossomed. My personal life has blossomed. My health has improved because I have that deep energy. I have that deep um, satisfaction. My bucket's so full that I can show up in all of these other areas. So for that, I am incredibly thankful. If you are craving to go deeper on your self-love and body love journey, please join me inside my private Facebook group, The Self-Love Shack. We meet once a week to continue our discussions and go deeper. You can also check out my self-love courses and coaching options at selflovepeddler.com. Follow the link in the show description for more details. I leave you with this. The only way to end women's cycle of body shaming, judgment, and self-loathing is through a common pact and plan to change the way we collectively think about our bodies and the bodies of those around us. Sending you peace.